think we got to pray. Lord Jesus, you really have taken the rags of our lives and made something beautiful out of them. And Lord, as we share together in the message you have for us today, we just want to say that we love you. As we have sung together, but we want to say the reason we love you is because you loved us first. That we couldn't help but love you back because of the amazing power and completeness and depth of the love that you have for us. And Lord, we say that not because we're afraid to show our emotion or our affection to you. It's because that's why we show our emotion and our affection to you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all, from this day, from the message that you bring as we talk about what your gospel, what our story, what your story in us really is, that your love would so surround us that it would just uh, shoot us out of here with a whole new sense and a whole new reminder of who you are in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being here. We love you. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we, uh, we are in a series, uh, coming to the end of the series, the last episode of the series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, and if you're new with us, you know, the last couple of weeks you've seen different faces up here. Uh, and uh, I'm Pastor Dwayne, lead pastor here. Uh, but I got to tell you, if you haven't been here for the whole series, or if you're still sort of checking out the claims of Christ and so forth, this is a great day to be here because we're going to talk about what it is that we Christians believe. And we're going to talk about the gospel today. What's the story? What's the deal? And uh, before we do that, though, I just want to sort of review for you uh, where we've been in this, what, uh, won't you be my neighbor? Because it's really a talk, won't you be my neighbor, is talking about being neighborly, like Jesus asked us to be neighborly when, when he taught this parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the, the guy came to him and says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus used that story to describe a neighbor. And really what it describes is living redemptive lives, lives that kind of ooze out and bear fruit and, and, and touch other people's lives because we're living the way with Jesus and Jesus is in us and we're experiencing his love and therefore we share his love and so forth. And if we put it in a kind of a, an acrostic to try and get our handle on it uh, a little bit called bless because it's not only a blessing to me and to you when we live the Jesus way, but it's a blessing to other people because it just, like I said, sort of oozes out of us. And so let me just review, uh, review what uh, bless is. Bless uh, begins with prayer. It begins by praying for people. God, I don't know who you want to come into my life, but I pray that if, you, if I can be of help to anybody, that you would bring them in my life and let me share their story and so forth and so on. And hopefully, we started out there, remember? Wrote it on there? Keep Praying about that, you, 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 you wrote down a little uh, a list of, of people you were praying for, or you did like I did, and you said, I need somebody. And you know what happened during the Blessed Series? I got two new neighbors. Isn't that interesting? So, um, on both sides of our house, uh, I'll let you know about how that goes later on, if, as long as they're not here and I'm not talking about them. So, uh, but listen, is, listen with care. Do you, do you realize now, I'm sure most of us realize, that's a lost art in our world today. Almost nobody listens to anybody else because we all want to share our story. <laughs> we all want to talk to them first. We want to got something on our mind, you know? And, and, and so listening with care and really hearing where people are at is, is the next step. Eating together. We, we've discovered that that's a powerful thing. I've said for years, when you eat together, things go better, right? Like it, when you eat together, church meetings go better because it's hard to go off the rails when you just ate with the person you're talking to, right? So eat together, and that's a way, there's something about that. And then uh, uh, fourthly, 
serve with love. Love, compelled by love to serve other people. That's in our mission statement. We'll talk about that today. But today we're going to talk about sharing our story. Sharing the story with with, with other people, and, and how does that work, and, and how does that happen? And the way I want to go about this, I'll just tell you right up front, we're going to look at three scriptures. We're going to look at how, we're going to look at um, what, what the story is, and why. Okay, the, the, the last, last scripture we'll look at is a beautiful description of how we share our story. The middle of scripture we'll look at is a why, uh, what the story is, what the gospel is, and to start off with, I want to look at Why? And, and, and to get at that, there's an interesting little quirky little strange story in the Gospel of Mark that we read this week. It's in chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, if you want to turn there, or otherwise watching the screen, or, or get out your device and look at it on there. That's okay too here at Eastridge. That's a redemptive experience. And uh, I'm going to ask you to take pictures of the screen today too if you want to. So it's good to have it handy. But... Uh, but Mark chapter 11, there's this strange story that was in Love This Book this week. And that's a good time to say, if you haven't started Love This Book, no worries. You don't need to go back and catch up. Just start right where it is today. Look, get yourself a journal and, and uh, look, up, uh, or look up on the website where, where we are and just start with this week, okay? But the story is about Jesus going to get some figs from a fig tree and then cursing it. And you go, What? What is this story? Let's look at it. It begins in verse 12 of Mark chapter 11. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, which is a town, by the way, of just a few miles to the east side of Jerusalem. Okay, so they're going toward Jerusalem. They're leaving Bethany because that's where they were staying. Jesus had friends there, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, those guys. The next day, they were leaving, for Bethany, leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he, uh, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. What? And his disciples heard him say it. Well, first of all, that little phrase, disciples heard him say it, it's like, Okay, here's, what, here's what's going on. Remember, Peter is the one that's talking into Mark. Mark was the first one to write a gospel in terms of the timeline, about 20 years after the crucifixion. And Peter is the one that's talking over his shoulders and saying, I saw that. We, we were there. He cursed this fig tree. Okay? So that, this is sort of an eyewitness account of what, what happened. And, and we moderns, we postmoderns, we look at this and we go, curse the fig tree? That poor tree. What's he doing to a tree? Right? Because we, we tend to personify trees and plants and animals nowadays. Have you noticed that? So because we've sort of got that educated thought damage, I'm just going to leave it there. I've got to tell you something. Trees are not people. Plants do not have souls. They can't feel this. So he didn't hurt this tree's feelings. I'm just saying, just in case you need her to know. But it's still a weird, weird thing, isn't it? Like, what are we supposed to get out of that? Well, the good news is, um, this is a good time to just sort of to, to stop and say, well, how do you really understand the Bible? And, and one of the ways you understand the Bible is you, you see if there's any context that explains it. And then in this story, there is something that begins to explain it. Because, but you've got to skip to verse 20, because what happens is they go into Jerusalem. Jesus cleans the temple out from a bunch of religious riffraff. They meet this monolithic, crazy cultural of resistance, culture of resistance. 
And, and then they come back to Bethany, spend the night, and as they're going out, here's what happens down in verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter, remember, and said to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. So overnight, this tree had withered, which, you know, in itself was sort of a miracle. And, and you begin to ask yourself, okay, but still, why did he do that to this tree? What's the point of that? And, and here's a little, this is a good time to explain, you know, when you come across hard passages to understand. One of the principles of understanding the Bible is once you've kind of circled around it and thought it through, sometimes you have to go with the most obvious thing. It's sort of like a, a, a version of Occam's razor, you know, when you've ruled everything else, else out, it's got to be that, okay? So, so that's, that's kind of what I think you have to do with this story. You got to go with the obvious, because what's this story about? It's about Jesus going up to a tree that has leaves, but it's, it's like springtime. It's like Easter time, our time, or, or Pentecost time. It's, it's right around that Pentecost time, and it's not time for figs yet. The, the text already said that. There wasn't time for it. So you say, well, why, why is he cursing this tree? Well, it's still, the story is about no fruit, Right? By the way, figs are fruits, not vegetables. So if there were no, there's no fruit. It's about the fruit. This is a symbolic cursing of this tree that Jesus is using to illustrate the fact that his people, in this case the Jewish people, had been fruitless even though they had had the truth about God. They had had God, and he called on them all through the Old Testament to spread it around the world, but they'd sort of kept it to themselves, and that was not okay with God. What it's talking about is fruitfulness because what Jesus is judging here is fruitlessness. I mean, you see this all through the Bible. In fact, remember the first command that is given after Adam and Eve are created in the book of Genesis chapter 2? The very first command, it runs all through the Bible, be fruitful and multiply. And we look at that, we go, well, that's about physical procreation, and yes, it is, because it's man and a woman married and so forth, and so that's right. But that's not all it's about, because it's a command that applies to everybody, whether they're married or not. To, be, to, to, to reproduce ourselves, to multiply ourselves by, by sharing our story, by being fruitful in the world. That's the difference. And, and let me just say this, too, to sort of take the burden off of all of us. Fruitfulness is different than productivity. They do share some th common qualities, but fruitfulness um, is not the same as productivity. You know, mo most of us look at that and we think, well, what Jesus must be talking about is I need to have a certain number of, of uh, people in my life or a certain number of people around me that I've shared the gospel with or, wh or whatever, you know, and that's not the case. See, productivity is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing, particularly in business. If, you, if, you're, if you're working in a business, you're working at a job and you're not very productive, that's not good. You need to be as productive as you can in that job because you need to be a witness to other people of what a Christian does with a job right? But that job is not your real calling. That job is to support your, your life in Christ and this fruitfulness. That's what it's for. So fruitfulness does not mean having numbers in your life and keeping track. Yeah, I witnessed to 10 people this week. That's not what it is. And it's not about being obnoxious all the time and buttonhole. It's not about that. It's about what fruit is about. How does a fruit grow on the edge of a plant, of a tree? 
it just naturally grows, right? The sap comes up, the nutrients come up, the sun shines on it, and so forth. Not to get too scientific because I have no idea what I'm talking about, but it just results. It's, that's what trees do, and that's what Jesus is saying. If you're one of my followers, this is what you do. You will live a fruitful life. It's not about, we're going to see it real clearly, it's not about me you know, just twisting myself up and making it happen. No, it's about God, allowing God to naturally flow through me. The natural um, result of being a Christian, of a Christian, is to bear fruit in some way. That's, in a sense, what this entire series has been about, is, is uh, living the redemptive life, living a life in the way of Jesus that, that shares his good news with other people. Now, it raises the question of why is this such a big deal to God? Well, let's make it real personal about why God says for you and for me, personally, individually, it's such a big deal. A, a few uh, weeks ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, I uh, was up here and I was teaching and, and I, I used a phrase a couple of times about what sin is that um, kind of came to me before I walked out here. And, and several of you kind of picked up on it. Well, that's, that's an interesting way to put it. And here was the phrase. That sin, the number one thing that sin does is that sin mercilessly drives us into ourselves. That's been Satan's goal ever since the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Remember that? He just doesn't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil. Right that? He, want, he doesn't want you to be a full person. So immediately when they sinned, they went into themselves. You see, here's, here's Satan's plan. It's, and it, and it's, the, it's the work of his, one of his greatest tools today, which is secularism, by the way. He tries to drive everybody into the you know, smallest place possible, which is ourselves. Just drive us in. And we get smaller and smaller, and we get small enough, he's just going to go, boop, and smash us. That's the goal of sin. And, and, and that's, that's what, what Je why Jesus and why God is so enamored and so concerned to get our eyes off of ourselves and out there instead of in here because we can't be set free until we have those bonds of sin driving us into ourselves, taken away so that we can see what's really real and who he really is and what he made us to really be. So you see the, the command to be fruitful and multiply. It's less of a command or a demand, and it's more of an invitation to join God, to join Jesus in this case, in beating back the powers of the kingdom of darkness. That's what it is. It's, it's an invitation to be a part of this and, 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 and moving forward. And ultimately, he gives us what's called, we'll see this in a minute with Apostle Paul, he gives us the ministry of reconciliation, of bearing fruit by you know, sharing with others that it can happen to them too. They can find peace with God and find out who they really are meant to be. Who doesn't want that? So it really, really is good news. But then you have to ask yourself, well, a question that probably these disciples were asking, Jesus, we just we think you're talking about fruitfulness and you're not real happy that we're not the Jewish people. We, your people haven't been very fruitful, haven't been sharing your story. But how do you do it in this crazy world? I mean, you just saw yesterday how crazy it is in Jerusalem and we're about ready to walk back in there and they want to kill you. I think Jesus was seeing that because what he does is he goes 
on in the very next verse and tells them about something, about how life happens when you live with Christ, when you live with him. Okay? How life happens in God's... And, and the problem is, he immediately starts talking about mountains, and it's sort of like, hey, wait, I thought we were talking about figs. Look at this. Verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Maybe he saw in their face that they were starting to droop a little bit about their faith. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to the mountain, this mountain, throw yourself into the sea. By the way, they were on a mountain going, the Mount of Olives going over the hill into Jerusalem. And does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. So he says truly, which is the word amen, amen, amen. Truly, I'm telling you, okay, I'm about ready to drop a truth bomb on you. And this, this, this truth will, be, will live with you and be a part of your life forever. And you begin to ask yourself, why does he go to talking about faith in the mountains when he's been talking about fruitfulness, you know, moving mountains and so forth? It's because I think these guys were getting kind of scared. And what he's saying is, if you have faith in me, I will overcome those fears by the greatest one who, who will give you awe, a sense of awe. I, I, I will show you what you really should be, quote-unquote, afraid of, but afraid in a different way is a sense of, ah, oh, this is true. You are true. And he, he's saying, you just leave your fears to me. You just hand them over to me, and, and, and you, will, uh, you will understand. When you, when you face that, that monolithic culture, when you face that, you know, can, can it really be done today that you, we can share our stories? Is it really possible and Jesus is trying to say, yeah, it is. It's not possible for you, but it's possible for me. You just open your mouth and I'll take care of the rest. That, I think, is what he's trying to tell us. I've been reading this book called The Disappearing Church, which is kind of a funny title. I don't think I would have named it that. It's a really good book. It's by a guy named Mark Sayers, who's a pastor and social commentator in Melbourne, Australia. And it's really about how not to be a disappearing church, Okay. But he says this really uh, poignant comment right in the middle of the book that is very much about this, about what we are up to in this culture. Here's what he says. A church that is no longer disappearing is one that leads people to realizing that they are not God. (laughs) God's trying to say, I am God, you are not. Okay, because most people kind of are their own God. The gospel proclaims that Jesus is king the great problem is that we are, as good 21st century citizens of democracy, don't like kings. We want to make ourselves king. Isn't that the ultimate problem of sin, is putting ourselves on the throne? Putting ourselves at the center of our universe? And it's gone almost, it's become an art form, it's become a science in our world today about the individual and the autonomy of the individual and putting ourselves on the throne and blah, 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 right? I mean, that, that's what he's talking about here. It's, it's what Francis Schaeffer said years ago, a couple, several decades ago, um, and, and it was before the year uh, we were more gender sensitive, and I understand that, although I don't know why you women would want to be a part of this, but, but Schaeffer says, the biggest problem with society and culture in our world today is the mannishness of man, and that has always been true. And what he means by that is human beings just act like human beings, and they they get their hands on everything because they make themselves the center of the, the, the universe. They make themselves the center of their lives and their wants, their desires, and so forth and so on, right? That's what drives us into ourselves. That's why God's got to take off those 
fingers of sin that are wrapped around us, right? That, that, that kind of explains a lot because it, it's, it's really talking about taking ourselves way too seriously as if we were God and not taking God nearly seriously enough because he is God, right? That's what it is. In fact, there's, this is not a new phenomenon. There's an there's a old ancient heresy that started right after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. It's called Gnosticism. It, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know something or to have special knowledge. And what it was was a whole group and a sort of a collection of sects or cults and stuff that just kind of, you know, they, they branched off of Christianity and they took some of that stuff and they added their own stuff. And basically all of them said, hey, we've got special knowledge about what, how God really works and how, how things really go and what, who Jesus really was. We have special knowledge that he didn't tell Peter and these other guys. He told us, and if you come and join our group and give us all your money, we'll tell you too, right? Does that sound any familiar? I mean, that... That's kind of how, it is, how, how they did it. But, but what it worked out into, on, in all cases, all these groups were a little bit different, but the reason you can put them all under Gnosticism is they all had this thing about, you know, the individual is king. That, that you and I, you know, that we really have, this, this group has, you know, one up on everybody else, and it's all about fulfilling your destiny, and, and here's how you do it, and all that kind of stuff was already happening back in the first century. Isn't that interesting? Because today, it's back, right? Gnosticism is back. Only not in the exact same form because the world has progressed and things have changed, but now we've got what might be called neo-Gnosticism. So what I like to do is is throw a chart up on the the screen, and I'm going to quickly go through it as quickly as I can. But as we go through this, I want you to ask yourself, number one, have you seen this kind of thing in the world around you? Have you heard these kinds of things on the neo-Gnostic side? And have you you experienced and do you know the, the answer that the gospel has to each of those? Okay, here's where we go. The first thing is, is that the Gnosticism says is that the world is inferior the world and creation is inferior, and it's up to us to fix it. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And the gospel says, no, 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 you got it wrong. The, 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 the creation has been harmed, but creation is good. How many times did God say a creation was good? It was good, it was good in the first two chapters of Genesis. First Timothy 4 says, hey, God created this for you to enjoy it. It doesn't split hairs about it either. Gnosticism says the problem is the mundane. You know, if I could just get those mean people out of my life, if I could just get out of this stupid job that's constricting me, life would be perfect. If I could just not have to do the dishes all the time. You know, stupid, mundane stuff. It's as if, you know, everybody's got an answer. If you just throw off this, if, but the Bible says, no, 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 what you're going to find is you're right back in the same muck. The problem is sin and rebellion. And the very fact that I don't recognize that I have sin and rebellion is, in fact, the greatest act of rebellion. Because God says that I do. So I'm telling them, you know, go pound sand. Make your body perfect. You know, since creation's harmed, I'll just make my body perfect. You know, I'll work really hard and so forth. And I won't ask you to raise hands how many of you have come to the end of that one. All right? It's not going to work. Jesus says, no, grace is what frees you, not you know, being perfect. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with exercising and whatnot. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus says grace is bigger than all of that. It's not just some little thing that if you try really hard. Uh, looking inward is uh, for, for, you look inward for what's real in Gnosticism. 
And the Bible says, no, no, God's revelation opens your eyes to what's real. Because you don't have, inside you have a very small package. God's got all this. You can't, you can't figure what's really real. Escape the mundane. You know, just throw off those shackles. Joy and meaning in serving God is the gospel. It's not about you escaping anything. It's about God taking, t- taking off the shackles. And, and joy and meaning that comes from serving God together, joining him in his mission. Tweaks, hacks, and secrets. If you just come up with that perfect secret, if you get that book, that self-help book, that's going to do it for you. Just tweak it that way. You know, tweak your habits a little bit. That'll change it. That'll make it work. But, you, but the Bible says, no, no, it's, it's less complicated than that. Just pursue Jesus. In Gnosticism, it says, you know, the seeker, I'm just a seeker looking for fulfillment. I'm just seeking fulfillment. Well, one, we'll leave this fulfillment part of it aside for a minute, but, you know, what the seeker does, you know, it, it was a good idea, it was a good concept, the seeker movement, even in the church in the 80s and 90s, because it helped us understand people's needs, felt needs. But the problem is in today's society, it's kind of gone to seed, and the plant that has grown up is that, you know, I'm a seeker, and that means God has to answer my questions and show up in my life on demand. What is that? That's putting this person right back on the throne of their life, right? And rather than that, you know, you're a recipient of grace. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to, you, didn't have to, you know, work for your fulfillment. God just gave you the grace. You didn't even deserve it, but God gives you grace. That's a completely different way of looking at your life. We need to get past religion. The gospel says, no, we partner with God and with his family in building the church with one another. It's about relationships more than religion. We move past personal barriers. If I can just get those barriers off, you know, and if I can, I can just do all these things that I've heard that might fix it, if I can just write that screenplay, if I can just whatever, then, then somehow I'll be famous, I'll, I'll get all this kind of stuff, shed the barriers. And God says, no, you're you're going about it all wrong. You just need to move towards spiritual wisdom, which is my wisdom, which I'm giving to you for nothing. You know? And what, what a freeing difference that is. The bottom line is, in Gnosticism, that we see all around us today, neo-Gnosticism, it's all about you. But that's a very small package. In the gospel, it's all about God and what God will do and what God does every single day in you and me. I hope you can see how freeing this is and how new this is. And I think what Jesus was trying to say to his disciples was, just give me your fears. Yes, I want you to be fruitful. Yes, it's a mark of what Christians are. I mean, just like trees bear fruit, that's what my followers do. They just naturally bear fruit. But that's on me. I'm just asking you to follow me. I'm just asking you to, to, to pursue me and I'll take care of that. See, I think the question that he's answering is the fear that many of us have about sharing our story. And that is, you know, sharing your story may seem impossible in the current cultural climate because they had just seen their current cultural climate. Sharing, sharing your story may seem impossible in your current cultural climate, but it's not. And the reason that it's not is because you're an expert on what God has done for you. Jesus says, you already know what I've done for you. I'm not asking you to answer all those other questions. I'm just asking you to remember what I've done for you in your life. And I have a feeling that when he's talked about faith and moving mountains, the guys go, oh, yeah, kind of like you've been doing for us for three years. Yep. Ah, okay. 
It's, it, it, it's, you're the expert on what God has done in your life. But which brings us to another question, and that is, what in fact is our story? What in fact is the gospel? And there are lots of places in the New Testament that talk about what the gospel is, but I think one of the best places is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I'm going to just read for you four verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 14, and then uh, I'm going to go back over them with sort of a list of six things that the gospel is. And again, what I'm asking you to do is think about when Christ did this for you, okay? Or showed you this truth. So let me start at verse 14, read through it, and then we'll go back. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, very small package, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do, so not, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this, all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There are six things that are listed in there that are really just... They're the description of what the gospel is, but they're also a description of what has happened to you and to me if we are Jesus followers. Let me just call them out. Look at verse one or verse 14. It says, Christ's love compels us. That's interesting because that's one of the, the pieces of our mission statement. We are compelled by Christ's love. But the point that this is making is that Christ loved us first before we loved him. And, and, and he made it possible. He, he took off all that stuff that kept us from being driven into ourselves and made it possible for us to love him because it wasn't possible before. Secondly, it says that he died for all. Why? It's because of that sin that was driving us into, in, into uh, ourselves. And, and again, rebellion is denial in the New Testament. Denying what God says is in fact rebellion and the ultimate sin. And so we needed him to die for our sin. We needed somebody who could take that for us because we couldn't take it. And then he says, so that we could live, the whole purpose why he did this is so that we could live not for ourselves, but for him. Again, it's getting the eyes off and looking out and saying, look at that. Look, look, look how wonderful God is and what he's done for me. And the whole thing that powers this, number four, is that he raised him from the raised again from the dead, verse fifteen, the bottom of verse fifteen, which the point is is that the resurrection. You've heard me say this before, but we need to call it out. The resurrection happened in space and time. It actually happened, and I know in the intelligentsia, just like in the intelligentsia in in Paul's day, if that was foolishness to the Greeks, and it was a stumbling block, something that the religious Jews just couldn't get over right? That's what Paul says earlier in, in this very book. So it's a, it's a foolishness and so forth, but think about it. If, if, if doing the same thing, trying to live and, and change the world and make a difference permanently in this world, if doing it on my own, as again and again and again we failed and we're trying to do it again, which is, which is crazier? That Jesus actually rose from the dead or trying to do it by ourselves, Right? 
I mean, it actually happened in space and time, and that's what empowers the life in Christ. In fact, we're going to talk about that in just a few weeks. This is real power that lives in the people that know Christ. Verse 17, it says, the new has come. You're not the same person. And you know one of the coolest things for our day and age that it means when it says you're a new person? When you remember the promise of Jesus at the, at the end of the Bible in Romans, or Revelation chapter 21, look, I'm going to make everything new. The fact that God has made you new into a new creation. Well, yeah. One of the coolest things is that you have resilience. No matter what happens out there, no matter how crazy the culture goes, if it gets crazy, er, <laughs> you've got resilience. You, do, you will not be smacked down. Paul says that too, just a couple of chapters earlier, one chapter earlier. We're not smashed. We're knocked down, but we're getting back up. There's resilience to that new creation. And then finally, it says God has shared with us his ministry of reconciliation, of peace with God. We found it, and now we have the privilege of sharing it, sharing our story with other people. And the thing I want to do, we boil those six things down. I want you to notice where it says at the beginning of verse 18, all of this is from God. It's all on God. It's not on you and me, yes. If we love him, we, we live for him, we live in holiness, we, we live a life that's redemptive, so yes, all of that, we do the blessed thing, yes, we do. But it's not even powered by us. It's like Ephesians 2 says. It says, that's not even on us. We, he's the author of our faith. All right? And so, so what, what, what this is actually saying is that the idea of following God, following Jesus, is a little bit different than we're used to in terms of following anybody. Because when we hear follow, we think, oh, I better run and catch up. This is different. Let me tell you how the Bible uses the word follow. Because that's a theme around here. We'll do whatever it takes to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. And we're going to do whatever it takes for us to meet, know, and follow Jesus. What does follow mean anyway, according to the Bible? Well, I was, kinda, uh, I was thinking about that this week, and then a tweet came through from, from a friend of mine. Remember I, I told you a couple weeks ago that I'm on Twitter? Again, and by the way, many of you have signed up for me on Twitter, okay? And I understand that the more Twitter followers I have, the cooler you are. So thank you. But I have to confess, because I know you're looking for a tweet from me. <laughs> I am a lousy tweeter, but I'm a really good reader. So that's kind of why I'm on Twitter. Just saying, if you don't see it, uh, it's not because I don't like you. It's just that's why I'm on there, to try and find these these articles. And this friend tweeted out this thing. He's, he's a pastor in Illinois. Uh, I saw him a couple of week times this summer because he's also a, a teacher. He's also a Hebrew scholar. He's getting his PhD in Hebrew. Old Testament, ancient Hebrew. Get this. He's looking at the 800 times in the Old Testament that the word to see is being used. How's that for smarty pants? All right. But he's a really great guy. And he told me something, and then he put this tweet together uh, that I'll put on the screen here. He told me about a, a, one of our favorite uh, chapters in the Old Testament, you know, um, the 23rd Psalm, you know, number, uh, verse 6, where it says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Remember that? The word follow, that's not quite, in English, we don't, we don't get the essence of it. It literally means, as it says on this tweet, to pursue, and not just pursue, but as it says, loyal love chases after me and hunts me down. God's love has hunted us down. 
If that puts a little fear down your spine, good. But if it also should give you a sense of immediately, God's grace, he loves me that much. Yeah, he loves me that much. That pursuit is what it means. And that's what the gospel means, that God, you know, you just didn't follow him. He came after you first, and the hound of heaven came flying after you. It's like the story of, from the 20th century. It was used by several uh, apologists in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, the, the author's initials might be C.S. Lewis. But anyway, it, it's about the miracle of suddenly realizing, oh, God's after me. And that's a good thing. Okay? Because do you remember that moment where suddenly you realized he really is? And the story goes like this. It's children playing in a room down the hall in the extremity of the house, and they're playing cops and robbers. And they're just so into the game, all of a sudden they hear footsteps coming down the hall. Look out the window, don't see a car. I added that part. They don't see a car. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Is this mom? Is this dad? Or is this a real robber? And the footsteps get closer and closer. And cl That's kind of what it's like to realize God's after you. Not because he wants to hurt you, but because he wants you. He loves you. That's what the pursuit of God is like and how tenacious. I remember when this happened to me. I was a teenager sitting in youth group. And I wasn't a particularly bright bulb at the time. If there are any teenagers in here, ignore that I said this. I didn't take a book home my entire time in high school, so just so you know. But I'm sitting there in youth group, and I can't even remember who was teaching but all of a sudden, I wasn't looking for it. Out of the blue, this overwhelming sense of, oh my gosh, God's after me, came over me. I hadn't been living for him. And I didn't know why it was coming. I had this sense, I mean, I had enough Bible, and enough teaching in me from the being in church and being made to go to church all this time, which I was made to go to that youth group, to realize that, hey, he's, they say he loves me. But it just, this overwhelming sense of, I want you came over me. And I didn't share it with anybody because, man, I'm a teenager. I'm not going to share my emotions with my friends. And I was just like, oh. And, and I was just sort of daydreaming. I don't have any idea what they were talking about. But all of a sudden, whoever was teaching at youth group that night started talking about 1 John 4.10. And that kind of popped me out because here's what 1 John 4.10 says at the beginning. In this is love. This is the definition of love. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and sent his son to die for us so that we can love him back, is how Paul says it here in 2 Corinthians 5. See, that, that, it was just like, oh, the, the, the world opened up to me. The wonder of what God was up to in me, just all of a sudden, the pursuit of God was just overwhelming. And I, and I look back on that, I was just thinking about that this week, I suddenly realized, you know, I don't know why it's taken me all these years, but I suddenly realized, you know, there were six or seven people who were sharing the gospel story and sharing their story into my life in the course of that time. And all of a sudden, bing, the light went on. Isn't that interesting? And I think that's what God is calling us to join him in. The question I know that in most of our minds is how? How do I live a lifestyle that shares my story? One of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible about how to share your story of what God has done for you in my mind, is in Paul's magnum opus, the book of Romans. And it's right there in chapter 10, the book of Romans. And I'm going to read, start reading halfway through verse 8. You're welcome to follow or follow it on the screen. But I really want you to just sort of pick this up. So listen to this about how to share your story. And I'll try to keep the comments to a minimum, but this is so awesome. I'll make a few. 
The Word is near you. It is in your mouth and it's in your heart. So you don't have to make up the story. You don't have, it's already there. You just got to remember it. It's already on your lips. That this message concerning faith that we proclaim, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, this is a natural byproduct of following God. It's the proof in the pudding of following Jesus, of being a Christian. It just comes out of you. And God makes sure you have opportunities for it to come out of you. Verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody, not just certain people, everyone you lay eyes on, even those people who are so obnoxious you think they could never find God. God can reach them. And then look at this series of questions. It's amazing. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? He sent us. And it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's Isaiah 52, 7. But the point of that is, is there is no greater thrill. There is no more awesome awesomeness than knowing God has used you and just simply sharing your story of what God has done to you in a powerful way to change somebody's life and make a new creation out of them too. There's nothing better than that. That is the ultimate. That is the deal. And so as, I, as we wrap this up, I just want to make this personal for a minute. I want to just think about, okay, what are some ideas on how we can share our story? And I want to share with you a phrase that I've used just about every time I've shared my story. Uh, and and it's, it's simple, it's, uh, it's respectful, it's non-threatening, it's, it's just, and, it, and it's normal, it is sharing the gospel. And, and here's the phrase that, that I'd encourage you, like when you're writing your story or you're starting your story, just say something like this, well, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to me. I thought you, you're the expert, Remember? You are the expert on what has happened to you. And um, I think that's what Jesus is trying to help us understand today. That this, he's already, you're just telling what's happened to you. Maybe you don't even use the same words that I've used this morning in terms of describing the gospel. That's okay. You just say what happened to you. And let me just do a little commercial here. In the next weeks, we're starting a new series. I'm very excited about this series. But we're going to have some videos of people telling this is what happened to me. This is how I became a Jesus follower. This is how he reached out to me recently and so forth. And the, the series we're going to go through is, is really cool that way too. It's about living the way of Jesus. It, it's it's a, a New Testament book. We're going to go through the whole thing. It's not really a book. It's a letter. Some people call it the letter of joy. It's letter of Philippians. Where, which, what's crazy is, is Paul is one, in one of the most difficult situations of his life. He's in prison for crying out loud in Rome. And yet the joy just oozes out of almost every verse. He says it explicitly, but it's all over the place. 
And the joy comes from, this is the point right now, the joy comes from living with Jesus in life. And whenever he gives you the opportunity to, pray, to begin with prayer, to love somebody or listen to somebody, to eat with somebody, to serve somebody, and then when he brings somebody in front of you and says, uh, so what is it you believe anyway? Share your story. This is what happened to me. Let me give you just a couple of practical ideas on how to kind of set that up, get ready for it. One is, talk to people who do this, because we have a lot of them in this church. And I'm going to name drop right now, and I have to confess two things. One is, I didn't ask these people if I could use their name. See, in the, younger, in the early days, when I used my kids' names up until about high school, and told a story about them, I had to give them a dollar. So I'm not giving you a dollar, <laughs> but... Uh, and the other thing is, is I know I'm going to miss a whole ton of people. So if I don't call your name, it doesn't mean I don't, I, I don't value your storytelling because I know you tell your story. But I mean, just people like Mike Winter. He does this all the time. People like uh, Diane Murphy. She does this a lot. People like Robin Candle. She does this a lot. People like uh, Chad Parsons. <laughs> he, he could talk your ear out, but he usually goes right to the heart of what's important. But these people know how to, how to share that. They know how to, this is what happened to me. And so if you're, if you're not so sure, just talk to them. You know, more than the professionals that are paid to stand up here and talk about the Bible. They're so weird anyway. Right? <laughs> uh, but here's the other thing I'd encourage you. Hopefully as we've gone through what the gospel is, some light bulbs have gone off in your head and you go, boy, that did happen to me, but it happened this way, and that happened to me. And that, oh, that's what Jesus did. Boom, boom. And while those thoughts are fresh in your mind, like in the next 72 hours, because statistics, I hate this statistic, say that you're going to forget everything I say in 72 hours. But in the next 72 hours, sit down or go to your computer or pull out your phone and pull out the notes app and just start with that sentence. This is what happened to me. And write your, some notes about your story. Start writing your story out. Sit down and do it. In fact, it, it, to... to, to you know, kind of give you a, a, a boost and a start. And in the spirit of Romans 10, 14, I'm going to share some questions you can ask to try and answer that, to try and write out your story of what Jesus has done for you. Here it is. It said, you know, what, is, what was your hang-up uh, with believing in the first place? What, was, what kept you from it? What was the blockage? How did the Spirit show you your sin problem? How did you hear the footsteps? How did your first, you first hear the gospel of Jesus? You know, in what context? And, and finally, because I bet you there's somebody like this, who did God bring into your life to tell you about this, the gospel, the story of, of Jesus? And just start there. And I'm going to call a band out here about just before we go into communion together. But this is the perfect way, segue into communion, isn't it? And here's what I want to tell you. God knows that you're not a professional gospel teller. You're better than us, that, right? You're a special person. You're like the people that you live and work with and are all around you every day trying to find what's the meaning of life anyway. So you actually have a better way than I do. You have a better position than I do. They hear a pastor and all of a sudden, well, you know. Oh, so they start apologizing for your language and all kinds of stupid stuff. Just because I'm a professional and I do, I do this for a living. But, you know, I'm trying to get back to where you are all the time. But what I'm trying to tell you is, you've got a story to tell. So talk to God, 
Ask him to show you how. Ask him to bring people in your life to help you. Do the blessed thing. But when he brings somebody into your life, tell the story. Just tell your story. And as we go to communion today, I want to ask you to just thank God for that story. Thank God for what he's done because that's what communion is. The sacrifice of his blood and his body for us. So we've already talked about how he wiped out sin with that. But just tell him, thank you that you brought this to my eyes and my understanding. And, you know, tell, pray, uh, make this a communion time of thanks as we do it, okay? Let me pray for us as we do. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins and that he rose from the dead. But I also want to thank you today for all the other stuff you did around that. All the stuff you did to get us over our barriers. All the other stuff you've done to keep Satan and sin from driving us into ourselves and really making a miserable mess of everything. And Lord, I know that the people all around us, you know, don't think they have that situation and that there are good things in life because you've created a good world. But Lord, I just pray that as we go from this place that you will, in fact, send us out compelled and shot out of here with your love of what you've done for us. And Lord, as we go to communion today, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for what it is you've done for us and how you've made us new. We're not proud and arrogant about it. It's, it's just such a wonder to sit and contemplate what it is you've done for us and reconciling us to yourself. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here today. And may you be honored by what we do now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.